This is Anthony Neal Smith. I am the author of Hoggoggin' and Yellow Medicine, and these two guys are blackmailing me to tell you to listen to a booked podcast. Daddy was a cop on the east side of Chicago, back in the USA. Welcome to Booked. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. This is our third installment in the Shindig and Chi-Town series here on Booked. Um, for those of you who haven't heard um, the first uh, couple episodes, um, this all took place at the world-famous Billy Goat Tavern um, back on the 2nd of March, uh, presented by Burnt Bridge and Flywheel Magazine. So tonight we're going to hear um, actually three um, different readers with a total of four different readings. Uh, the first of which is going to be Molly Lake, who um, has appeared in Burnt Bridge with her story Stillwater. And uh, tonight she reads from her work in progress, Welcome to the Jungle Book, an unfinished novel. All right. The second reader that you're going to be hearing is going to be a really quick one. Jeff Peck, uh, who is the editor-in-chief over at Flood Wall, uh, reads from a work in progress called Gradation. Um, it's a really short, quick story. I think it clocks in around six minutes long. So uh, he'll be reading from that tonight and because of the length of these we're going to go ahead and throw three of them together for you so as a kind of bonus tonight you're going to hear um erin elizabeth keaton who is uh, david james keaton's sister she is going to be reading a story um by chuck kinder Uh, chuck is the author of honeymooners a cautionary tale snake hunter silver ghost and he also has a book of poems out Um, the story she'll be reading is called red deck shoots down a flying saucer that's probably all we need to explain about that story Um, and then afterwards she's going to read one of her own poems all right so without further ado check out molly lake jeff peck and erin elizabeth keaton reading from chuck kinder and from her own poetry all right um i'm actually really happy to have reading tonight, in addition to Mark, our first, you know, author, print book author, I have Molly Lake, and she is actually the first author that I ever edited. And uh, when I first started the magazine, we were getting ready to put out our first issue, we were pulling all the submissions, and she submitted over the transom, regular submission, um, I love the story, it's in our first issue. Uh, we changed the title, ended up being called Stillwater. Um, it's a, a an, an amazing dark gothic little story, and I think you should all go to the website and download it and read it. Um, but yeah, I, I I printed out her submission. I marked it up with my pen and I scanned it back in and emailed it back to her and said, "We want to publish it as long as you make these changes." And you know, uh, she did, and we love the story. I'm so really happy to have it. Uh, graduate of the MFA program at Missoula, Montana, Wayne State University. And now, uh, actually, I haven't caught up with you enough. What are you up to now? I can't hear you. I'm sorry. Oh, what are you up to these days? Uh, I teach community college. <laughs> All right. Well, welcome, Molly. She's going to come up here and read for us. <laughs> okay. I'm not good at talking loud. Is this is this okay? Yeah. Let me know if I start to dip down, because I will. Um, I teach, but I'm still, they tell me to, to talk louder, too, so. All right, um, this is from my unfinished novel. It's called uh, Welcome to the Jungle Book. That's sort of the a working title. So this is just like a snippet in the middle 
Um, I think what you need to know is the, the protagonist is named Dorothy, and uh, she's suicidal, and she lives in Helena, and she's um, house-sitting a rabbit, and um, so she's decided that she's going to kill herself soon. But, funny. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Every night I walk to the Safeway to buy frozen dinners and boxed wine. Before too long, I developed a weird obsession with the night checkout boy, Stuart, for whom everything seemed to have gone wrong. There was the red Safeway vest that couldn't be helped, but still he managed to wear it badly. He had thick thighs like a woman, and he curled his fingers into talons when he wasn't using them. Most upsetting to me was his felt, wispy mustache. It got so bad, I'd taken to lying in bed at night sleepless from fantasies of shaving it off. You could tell he was proud of it, that he'd been saving up for years with the fervent belief that it would all amount to something, like he thought with enough time it would leap off his face and circle once around the room before lifting him up and carrying him to heaven. If he'd just known his role and kept his head down, if he'd talked softly and been content with a few shy smiles, I could have ignored him and none of this would have happened, but instead, oh, instead. Stuart talked loudly and said unfunny things that almost made sense but then didn't. Cold enough for you out there was his go-to, except for him it wasn't a rhetorical. He had to know if you thought it was cold enough and patrons struggled to respond. I learned he was not yet 21 when after checking the IDs of three young girls buying wine coolers, he said, in six months I'll be joining you, which the girls and I agreed required no response. To a man in a fishing hat, he'd ask how the fish were biting, with their mouths, the man supposed. It was offensive and wrong the way Stuart commented on people's purchases. To a girl buying grape juice and Excedrin, what, do you have a headache? To the stout man with labored breathing buying toilet paper, a two liter of Mountain Dew, and a German chocolate cake, Stuart said, cake, is that good? More painful than the people who clearly hated Stuart were the ones who loved him, the raging extroverts who lit up like Christmas trees to know that they were not alone, that other people lived to say dumb, terrible things too. <laughs> Stuart, said a man with a bucket-shaped head, my main man was shaking bacon, and so on. The last two nights, I'd bought vegetables for the rabbit, frozen dinners, and boxed wine. Both times, he checked my ID laboriously. Dorothy, he said, Dorothy from Michigan. Please don't, I thought, but he did. He said, you're not in Kansas anymore. Whenever I hear this, I lose my mind and a tornado comes spinning towards me, erasing everything in its path, every time taking away with it a morsel of my best self. My second time through, he handed me the plastic bag and said, Dorothy, party of one. On that last night, just about everything was different. The store would be closing in 15 minutes and a woman in front of me had a year's worth of groceries for Stuart to editorialize on. That same thought of Stuart's mustache flying away with him came to mind and I got the idea to not only move up my scheduled suicide but to take Stuart along with me. A suicide pact carried out with a dweeby checkout boy survived by a rabbit would leave everyone so much to puzzle over the weird why of it. I hoped it would solve other problems. The plan was to do something domestic at Nancy's house, slash wrists or pills and vodka, but these were such girly death rattles, and I was concerned about adding to the already embarrassing statistics of more female suicides attempted but failed, you know, feminism. <laughs> a memory of the photo of Steven Tyler hanging in Nancy's bathroom saying to me, Dorothy's got a gun, but Dorothy doesn't have a gun, and neither did Nancy as far as I could tell. Stuart obviously lived with his grandparents on the other side of the river, and every grandpa in Montana has an arsenal. These are just facts, like plate tectonics are facts. I went with a big box of Cabernet Sauvignon, 
a way too large frozen pizza, and a package of replacement blades for an X-Acto knife. He asked if... If he asked, I had my answer at the ready. It's not what you think. I'm just going to eat an entire pizza, get drunk, and cut myself in the bathtub. <laughs> Stuart ran out my items in rare silence as if they embarrassed him, which made me a little mad. He ran out my wine without checking my ID and said, in six months, I'll be joining you. You're a baby, I said, because men like when you point out if you are older or taller or smarter than them. The lights over the produce section whooshed off and I was the only customer left in the building. I lingered there and he held my change in his hand without handing it over. I'm new to the neighborhood, I said. Do you like Helena? It's too clean, and I don't get why there's a big mosque in the middle of a town with only white people. I've lived in Helena my whole life, Stuart said. No, I said. <laughs> it was going well, but I didn't know how to transition into the suicide pact. I tried to say something normal. My house is just behind the Safeway. Are you doing anything tonight? Maybe you could come over and drink some wine with me? Stuart's ears got red, and a look that could only be described as panic came over him. I'm not 21 yet, though, he said. Are you kidding? I was about ready to pack it up and die alone as planned when Stuart said, Can we go to my house instead? I have the whole basement to myself, and I just... He looked like he was about to apologize and then changed his mind. I need to meet my guild for a campaign at 1230. It won't take long, but I'm a healer and they need me. I have to be there. <laughs> He added, it's a suicide mission. <laughs> Our eyes locked in something close to romance, and of course the gun would be at his house. This was the only way to do it. He said I should wait in his car so he could close up. The green Taurus, he told me, and I walked outside thinking, the gun, the gun, the gun, having forgotten about the rabbit. Waiting in the car, I drank the Cabernet out of the carton and thought about how I could turn the conversation over to why he should come along on the suicide with me, using skills I'd learned by reading how to win friends and influence people. Show him how the plan benefited him and use his name a lot. Stuart, the world is cruel and pointless, isn't it? Stuart, are you a virgin? If you haven't kissed a girl yet, Stuart, it only means your future chances are more dismal. <laughs> Stuart's basement wasn't what I expected exactly. There was the glowing monitor plus a TV set up with several game consoles, but the animal skulls and antlers and jaws and teeth everywhere, that I wasn't expecting. <laughs> They sat organized in rows on bookshelves. A pile of ribs towered at the foot of his bed. The bones were suspiciously clean, and the room smelled like nothing at all. A gigantic moose antler had been arranged artfully on a coffee table. Fucking kids today, I thought. Not a single book in the whole place. My campaign's about to start, Stuart said. Do you like games? I can set you up with something on the TV. I told him I stopped playing after the games got more complicated. I started in on a long diatribe about how in my day you couldn't save the game, how you had to pause Super Mario Brothers mid-leap until you got home from school, but this story bored Stuart, and he interrupted. I have Tetris for Super Nintendo, okay? I said okay. And for a while things were going fine. I built big orderly blocks on the screen and waited with bated breath for the long thin strips, so much so that every time they arrived the surgeon points plus the screen flash and shout of Tetris poked tiny holes in my thoughts of suicide. It seemed like I'd never lose. Then one simple mistake led to another and then another until everything I built would fall apart and I remembered my other shortcomings. Meanwhile, Stuart, Stuart squirmed around in his seat and grunted into a tiny headset like a pilot as though this were some real thing and he'd say, oh, come on, or geez, guys, get it together. His game ended and he slumped down sullenly in a chair next to me. We lost, he said. Life's like that, I said. I had an impressive tower going. You're playing on the easiest setting, so I've got next game. I really didn't want to share, but this was a time for rapport building. So Stuart, you live here with your grandparents? Just Nana, Pops died last year. 
An L-shaped piece I thought would spin the other way totally fucked me, and now my perfect building had a big ugly window in it. I drank most of the wine by myself. Stuart insisted that he really wanted his first drink to be Goldschlager. <laughs> so, are you, like, happy, I asked him. My building piled up to the ceiling and I lost. My turn, he said. I drank more wine and pouted. Do you hunt? Nah. Did your grandpa hunt? Stuart looked at me and said, please. My only hope was that the deadbolted door across the room was also a gun closet, but I doubted it mattered. Stuart seemed annoyingly content with his pathetic life and giant moose antler. I wondered where the other one was, and then I noticed something disturbing on top of the TV. Is that a baby skull? Stuart sighed dramatically. It looks really real, I said. Yeah, well, it's not, Stuart said. I went to get up to examine it, and he barked at me. Sit down. I really should have explored the evidence of a dead infant more thoroughly, but it looked like Stuart had started another game, and instead I slurred, hey, it's my turn. I cleared the level, he said. We should switch off every level, I said. Not, Stuart said. I watched him put the block right where I would have put it, and again with the Z-shape, but the weird pyramid piece he set up all wrong on its side, and I told him so. Then he did another wrong thing, and then another. It's true that I was getting to be kind of a backseat driver about it, but still. Oh my God, Stuart screamed, you're awful. Jeez, I said, all women are awful. He threw down the control and started pacing the room. Hey, we're not the best, I conceded. I picked up what looked like a howler, or he picked up what looked like a howler monkey spine and threw it past my head against the wall. Take it easy, I said, like a drunk person who didn't care, but I did care a little. Stuart, it seems like things aren't going well for you. Pardon me, Stuart said, but why are you here? I thought maybe your overly garrulous nature masked an inner sadness, I said. I don't want your help, Stuart said. He picked up a long thigh bone belonging to who knows what manner of animal and started smacking his other palm in the way of a prehistoric cop. Oh no, I don't want to help you, I said. Stuart looked at me sideways. I can smell your cunt, he said. That's about when I caught on to the fact that the situation had turned. Still, I was a little slow on the uptake, which is why when Stuart swung at my face with a bone, it was only luck that I turned my head with the direction of the swing. It knocked my teeth uh, knocked my teeth loose a little, but I had bad gums to start. The blood cooling in my mouth was dramatic, definitely. I know that I should have been, but the honest truth is that I wasn't scared. I maintained that my plans were not a cry for help, that I truly did not care whether I lived or died. And this afforded me a kind of freedom in what would otherwise be an untenable situation. I held my swollen face and spit blood on the carpet. I looked over at the pile of ribs and said what I had been planning to say before he hit me, which was, seriously dude, why is your basement filled with animal bones? Sit down, he told me. Actually, I was thinking I should probably get going. He tried to push me down into the seat behind me, but it was on wheels and instead I sort of slid off of it and fell to the floor. He hovered over me, holding the bone above his head like the ape from 2001. I put my hand out. Stuart, okay, what do you want me to do? Get in the chair. He opened the deadbolted door and came back with a tangle of rope. The arsenal was just a utility closet. If we wanted to die together, we'd have to beat ourselves to death with animal bones. I sat obediently as he tied me to the chair with my arms behind my back. The room was silent except for the Russian Tetris music, and he had to lean over me to get the rope around my chest. For the first time, there lingered between us that awkward realization that we didn't really know each other that well.
All right, I'm sorry. I lost the paperwork I had to introduce the next guy. I got, I might have left it in the bathroom actually. I was, um, I was gonna tell my lady friend about the incident in the bathroom just now, but I can tell you right now, there's like six dudes that were in there. Those fucking mutts that are up at the bar right now. They're like, have you ever seen Goodwill Hunting? Imagine, you know how those guys are kind of assholes, but that guy's like a math genius. So this was Goodwill Hunting without the math in the bathroom. They were there was a line of guys, and he's like, uh, "We're gonna need a bigger boat. We're gonna need a bigger boat." Who said that? Who said that? And I said, "Brody from Jaws." He's like, "Brody, yeah, Brody, man. It's like trying to squeeze a lemon over there." I don't know what the fuck they were saying, but they sound they had that Boston accent. And it's those those fucking guys over there. The one he's wearing like a American flag on his chest. <laughs> no, I'm just saying that that's why I lost your shit. Jeff Peck is gonna read. I don't have any of his information. He is a tall, bumbling fuck. He's like eight feet tall. You're gonna see that in a second. He's gonna come up to here. He is the new uh, fiction editor or editor in chief of Floodwall. And he was our fiction editor at Flywheel, but we fired his ass. So, Jeff Peck, ladies and gentlemen. Marvel at his size. Look at the size of this fucker. He has crushed everything he's loved. He's up a beer and explodes in his hand. All right, sir. All right, thanks, Dave. Uh, all right, this is going to be pretty brief. Just have like a little tiny vignette uh, from a larger work in progress. Okay? Alright, it's uh, called Gradation. Alright. Just a mile outside the city limits of Council, Oklahoma, a man in dirty jeans and a soiled gray sweatshirt stood above Interstate 40 on the Route 81 overpass. It was an early November morning, the sun just becoming visible in the east, and he rubbed his hands together in an attempt to alleviate the chill in his bones. Eighteen-wheelers were starting to fly by in both directions. Trucks headed east went on into Oklahoma City. From there, who knows? They can meet up with, they can meet up with the I-35 and travel south to Dallas or Houston, north to Kansas City, Omaha, maybe all the way to the Twin Cities. Possibly keep driving east over to Memphis, Nashville. Might take I-44 and go straight on into St. Louis. Be there by mid-afternoon. He decided he'd follow the westbound road. There just seemed to be fewer options that way. Trucks heading west had to go all the way to Amarillo for a decent stop. He'd gone that far west once with his family. It was years before at the age of 13 when an uncle was married in Dumas, Texas. That had been nice. He remembered how when they reached Amarillo, they went north up into the panhandle. Even though there weren't any mountains, you could still feel them climbing into higher altitude. But when they rolled into Dumas, it was just as flat as western Oklahoma. High plains, his father said from the front seat. He hadn't thought of there being a higher kind of flat. Walking with his head down along the interstate, his heartbeat rose whenever he caught sight of a plastic bottle, only to be let down when it didn't contain urine. He knew truck drivers used meth to stay awake on cross-country drives. Knew that many of them would rather piss in a bottle and throw it out the window than lose 15 minutes with a truck stop. Recycled meth wasn't as pure a dose, but a batch of good urine still got him five hours once. He found himself picking at the scab on his left hand as he continued walking, a nervous tick that had gotten out of control. He shoved his hands into his pockets but kept thinking about the sores on his body, causing him to bring a hand up to his face and run it through the rough patches on his forehead. 
he wondered what he looked like. Probably homeless, homeless, and at that point he supposed he was. His girlfriend left the week before, less than a day after they turned off the electricity. Shut the water off a few days after that. She'd gone to stay with her folks in Hobart, which had its conditions. One that she couldn't see him anymore. Her parents never had liked the fact that she was eight years younger than him. And two, that her father, the cop, would administer a drug test every two weeks. She was a fool. So were her parents. He knew it would end badly. With his headache becoming more acute, he contemplated crossing the interstate to search the other side. He thought about the dynamics of driving, how the driver was on the left side. Would they really lean across the passenger seat to throw out a bottle of piss? The stretch of grass separating eastbound and westbound was more likely. He was wondering if a highway patrolman would stop him for walking in the median when he caught sight of a plastic bottle lying in the grass. The unmistakable golden color was nearly concealed by the lifeless grass surrounding it. He slid down to his knees, picked up the bottle. It wasn't warm. He wondered if that mattered. With thoughts of separation and reconstitution, he shook the bottle up like juice. He twisted the cap off and brought the bottle to his nose, wishing there was some way to know if it contained meth. He didn't think there was. Thanks, guys. Okay. Um, got about one or two more. So you can, Jeff. So you can, you can get high drinking piss. <laughs> yeah, if you get high on meth and then piss, you can drink that. This is high. true. This is actual thing. Yeah. Fact? Because this guy looks skeptical. <laughs> He's like, I have never done that. <laughs> I did look perplexed. Okay. Really? Next, uh, we have Chuck Kinder. Before Chuck Kinder became a full-fledged fictionaire, whose work reflects his personal philosophy that everything one writes should be literally true, as the Bible, he worked variously as a coal miner, moonshiner, bartender, bouncer, bandit, prize fighter, circus performer, tango teacher, whitewater river guide, professional cook, cowboy, college professor. He's the author of the novels Snake Hunter, Silver Ghost, Honeymooners, A Cautionary Tale, and his latest, Last Mountain Dancer, Hard-Earned Lessons in Love, Loss, and Honky Tonk Outlaw Life. It's not his latest. He's got that book of poetry. He also wrote a book of poetry <laughs> where he has a poem called Pussy Simple Ape Man. Great poem. Which he claims he dedicated to somebody in this room. Chuck Kinder's not here today. So my sister will be reading in a southern accent to try to imitate Mr. Chuck Kinder. This is Redneck Shoots Down a Flying Saucer. My sister Erin also is an artist. Her artwork is up here. Check it out. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to read one of my own poems, because I write poems too, after this. Okay. Redneck shoots down flying saucer. The sad saga of Cindy Sinpatch and Peewee, the lovesick extraterrestrial. Visitations from otherworldly mysterious beings are not uncommon in any part of the mountain state of West Virginia. The night skies above the West Virginia are frequently filled with, que with queer blobs of crystalline white and blue pulsating lights. These lights move at treetop level, sometimes hovering, sometimes speeding about, making crazy impossible turns. 
There are also many daylight sightings of strange circular objects or oblong shaped objects that are often described by locals as looking like giant slow bleaking penises. <laughs> the big debate that rages in West Virginia concerns the nature of these frequent visitors from the beyond. More than a few West Virginians claim the extraterrestrials are actually angels. The proponents of this notion often lift up some serpents to pray for salvation and relief and deliverance into a new spiritual geography. Most citizens of the mountain state, however, note that angels would probably not be inclined to drop into West Virginia as regular as clockwork simply to rustle farm animals for bizarre mutilation <laughs> rituals. Not to mention kidnap mutilations of regular, everyday West Virginians in order to examine them from head to toe and to frequently engage them in extraterrestrial sex. Especially if those abducted West Virginians are young, juicy majorettes, cheerleaders, and or homecoming queens. Several parts of West Virginia could be described as virtual UFO magnets, such as a particular area in Boone County known as the Old Hogue Hollow, where the aforementioned unidentified blinking penises appear to congregate, which helps explain Excuse me. Which helps explain why one old Hogue Hollow resident did not hesitate to shoot down such a UFO when the opportunity presented itself. He not only brought down the perversely shaped craft from outer space, but also beat a space alien passenger pitlessly about its pink head while in the process of taking it captive. About 6 a.m. one misty October Sunday morning, Henry Hogue was heading east on old Hogue Hollow Road in his Ford pickup to go possum hunting near Sinpatch Woods, when his old hound, Lulu, commenced howling in a haunting and particularly forlorn fashion. Presently, Henry Hogue heard what his hound heard, namely a high-pitched, rattling hum that Henry described as sounding as mournful as milk duds being thrown against a blackboard. Henry Hogue rounded, into, rounded a bed into a small clearing clearing down by floating turd creek when suddenly he saw one of those leisurely blinking penis-shaped flying saucer machines it was hovering extremely low over cindy sinpatch's double wide the first thing that occurred to henry hogue was that space aliens had taken a notion to abduct cindy sinpatch who was a former majorette and miss golden possum boone county <laughs> boone county high school's homecoming queen in order to inspect her from head to toe Cindy Sinpatch was a 28-year-old, off-divorced woman who entertained, who entertained hair red as flames, not to mention multitudes of exotic tattoos on lean arms and legs, whose delicate muscles flecked like lovely, flecked like lovely shadows on water. The very idea of space aliens observing those constellations of tiny, pale hair, pale, heart-shaped, sweep to the kiss freckles that adorn the inner thighs of Cindy Sinpatch said Henry Hogue's store-bought teeth on edge. Such an insufferable acquaintanceship was unthinkable to Henry Hogue. Henry Hogue secretly longed to be next in line in the love department for the six-time divorcee, Cindy Sinpatch. If truth be told, it was Cindy Sinpatch's own personal fiery red and possibly fragrant possum that Henry Hogue had been prowling for on that early Sunday morning. Henry Hogue reached for the nearest weapons he had at hand namely a case of walk-the-line light beer, 
Henry hogunned the truck up beside that lowly hovering blinking penis machine and began chucking bottles of Walk the Line light beer at its luminous silvery sides. The bottles proved to provide satisfying explosive events. Henry would later relate, but they didn't appear to even dent that infernally blinking dick. Suddenly, Henry Hogue pushed aside his befuddlemation, recalling his handy hunting rifle in the bed of his truck. Big duh, Henry Hogan explained, exclaimed, as he got out and grabbed his gun. Whereupon Henry Hogue crept up on that pulsating pecker machine, just like I was hunting Bambi, the, deer, the baby deer, not the local bar girl, Henry Hogue made clear for the record. The pulsating pecker machine was actually rather lovely in its aspect, Henry Hogue would later recall, somehow eloquent in its leisurely levitation, emitting a satisfying calm glow, calm golden glow over the small clearing by the lumpy black creek, silvery wings slowly sliding in and out of its sides, seemingly in time with its ever soft, its ever softening hum, now as soothing as an old hymn or half-remembered lullaby from childhood. But that extraterrestrial blinking dick machine was nonetheless drifting ever lower and lower towards Cindy Sinpatch's utterly exposed double-wide. Whereupon a green ray shot from the belly of the unidentified Paulson Pecker machine and settled like an enveloping aura about Cindy Sinpatch's defenseless double-wide whose soft yellow kitchen lights looked so heartbreakingly frail and lovely and inviting. In the green glow of that otherworldly light, cast by the blinking penis machine, cats in the yard appeared confused and inconsolable, chickens stubborn and resolute. Henry Hogue double-pumped and fired his gun in a heartbeat. Famous as a dead-eye shot, Henry Hogue hit what appeared to be a sort of satellite dish on top of the unidentified flying dick machine. Immediately, that UFD machine spun totally out of control. Not at all unlike, Henry Hogue observed, my drunk kid brother on prom night. Whereupon, that formerly pulsating pecker machine smacked into the earth with a big whoomp. Satisfying billows of blue smoke poured from a porthole that suddenly popped open. What appeared to be a little pink extraterrestrial space monkey, dripping this golden glowing E.T. blood, crawled out on all sixes. It let out a childlike cry and fell flat on its oddly shaped pink head with an ugly splat. Henry Hogue rushed up to the little pink E.T. creature, which did not look unlike a dick with pointy ears and antenna, and commenced to beat it fearsomely about its bald head with the butt of his gun. <laughs> As Henry Hogue kicked and stomped on the tiny pink alien bee, Henry Hogue reflected upon his chances now with the lovely Cindy Sinpatch, who Henry Hogue hoped was witnessing her own salvation from a fate worse than death at his very own feet. The lovely Cindy Sinpatch was famous throughout the hills and hollows of Boone County equally for her generosity of heart and bad luck and love. As Henry Hogue ground the heel of his boot into teeth that looked like tiny tombstones, he speculated that this unfolding event would somehow change both Cindy Sinpatch's bad luck and love and his own generally wretched life as a doomed and despairing barroom brawler whose world was haggard and hopeless, forlorn, full of sadness and regret. From here, out, from here on out, there would be no unforgivable actions or events for Henry Hogue in the memorable, enduring, immortal, lisquent light 
of Cindy Sinpatch's gratitude and shining love. But Henry Hogue was not aware of the fact that those splashes of golden ET blood and bits of blue binary brains he was currently grinding beneath his boots held the last memories of a tiny planet in a galaxy at the very edge of the known universe. An amazingly advanced civilization had once flourished on this tiny planet, and the zenith of their development had been the discovery of how they could project the pure energy of their minds into matter. Beneath the surface of their tiny planet, they had over countless centuries constructed vast factories of transformers geared toward converting the energy of their dreams and desires into the realm of the real. In this transformative process, genders merged and meshed into the matingly needless moot point of mingled space alien eggs and seeds. This amazingly advanced civilization had vanished, of course, as amazingly advanced civilizations are wont to do when they lose the necessity of desire and its attendant love eons before. The tiny pink dickish space alien began ki being kicked and stomped and smeared into the dirt was one of the very last lonely survivors of that lost, amazingly advanced civilization and sadly abandoned planet. The tiny, pink, dick-like creature's name was ZRQZXVRQ, which roughly translated into English as Pee-wee. Like all of the remnants of its kind, what the little space alien monkey named Pee-wee most coveted in this universe was that commonality of miracles called desire and love. In eons of searching across the cosmos, the little alien being and its, and its kind had courted the necessary for desire and love in countless constellations. The little alien being, aka Pee-wee, had found a special lovely lewdness in the soft kitchen light of Cindy Sinpatch's double Y down by the lumpy black creek, which both broke and healed its hearts, for Pee-wee was a creature with two hearts and could entertain a double helix of love if given half a chance. The gentle probing green light of Pee-wee's unidentified flying pecker machine had looked into the depths of Cindy Sinpatch's own lonely life, seen the color of her melancholy, the hues of her essential sadness and silence. Pee-wee's twenty tiny pink fingertips had slowly kneaded Cindy Sinpatch's stiff nipples with infinite tenderness and understanding. The little alien being named Pee-wee had cooed to Cindy Sinpatch in an otherworldly, tiny, tinkling bell voice, rich with ancient spells and incan incantations about a lost world of circling binary blue suns and more honey-colored moons in an endless blue night sky than you can shake a stick at. A lost world once full of desire and love wherein lives, wherein lives began with happy endings and work backwards. A lost world of gentle blue gravity wherein lovers could slip into the essential stories of one another's lives, let comfortable old coats, and mutually inhab inhabit any magic moment forever. The bottom line of this newsflash is that the little space alien, aka Pee-wee, had been the lucky one next in the long line in Cindy Sinpatch's love department, <laughs> which could mostly explain Cindy Sinpatch's intricate lament as she held the soft, moist, mostly shapeless mass of matter in her lap, which was the pulpy remnant of the little space alien named Pee-wee's head, little bits of blue brains and golden E.T. blood glowing on her lovely bare legs, a lament described by the onlooking state police officers and Henry Hogue, who is weeping profusely at this point, as full of otherworldly sound and spells and ancient incantations, 
not to mention infinite longing, sadness, and regret that she had lost her own little savior angel, alien, forever. business cards here and drawings too, so anybody's interested. You do human things and you know you're a human. You don't need to be examined to prove you're a woman. A stretch to open the jaw in down and up motion. You slather your body in calamine lotion. I saw you at a table and you at a chair. The girl was first seen with a pen in her hair, woven on basket-like, much like a nest, for a bird of your hair color to lie down and rest. After placing the balls with numbers and pockets, we drove to your home, shut the door, locked it. You looked at my face for nearly an hour. You looked at my face. I busied myself in remote nearby ways, the end word in the stanza most ought to be gaze. My hand flew to your sweater and pulled off a string. It was telling, and I already know everything. All right. So before we get on talking about the, uh, the, the readings that we heard, um, let's address the second time that David James Keaton has managed to, <laughs> to pick a fight with someone in one evening. You know, we need to really just go out drinking with this guy and see how badly we get our asses beat somewhere. <laughs> in well, between the first and second reading was uh, was him picking a, a fight with apparently like four or five guys. I couldn't see him from where I was sitting, but uh, oh, I'm pretty sure those guys were within earshot of, of that commentary. Yeah, and this is the guy who, in the episode we had him on, uh, back when we interviewed him for ZB&B, was telling us about how he kept a recorder in his car so he could keep track of the license plates of people that pissed him off in traffic. So I don't know why we didn't see this coming. But, um, <laughs> he, yeah, he, he that dude's just hilarious to be around. And that was just the... Uh... That right there was the the first um, and I guess second mention of of movies that you'll hear from him throughout the course of these readings because there's probably like fourteen or fifteen, including his story that he's gonna he's gonna be reading in our very next episode. Yeah, he is like a savant when it comes to movie knowledge. It's crazy. It is. <clears throat> so Molly Lake's story um, or her excerpt from Welcome to the Jungle Book was uh, was a very uh, cute look at somebody who's about to commit suicide. Um, I really like that story a lot, and I'm looking forward to uh, to her putting the rest of that book together. Yeah, it actually reminds me a lot of my uh, buddy Brayton had a story uh, who where it's one that he's working on. I won't go too much detail, but like it was basically this guy spends um, a certain amount of his lifetime trying to write the perfect suicide note. Uh, so kind of reminded me of that. Um, one thing that <laughs> you won't be able to tell from the, from listening to it, but <laughs> when, when, when she was reading, we had the microphones, you know, set up at the front, but she kept walking kind of farther and farther back into the crowd. <laughs> so, um, it ended up that Livius kind of had to hold the microphone in his hand and he was slowly kind of turning in his chair and he had to keep like reaching and reaching so that the microphone would be close enough to her so it would still record. Uh, it was kind of funny because I don't think she realized um, she was messing up our shit. Yeah, it's only kind of funny to you. I still can't move my shoulder perfectly. <laughs> a month ago now, 
Yeah, I heard things like that can give you a serious uh, uh, sleep apnea disorder. Yeah, it, it could be. But then I get one of those cool masks like Neil has. <laughs> All right, Jeff Pack. His story was really short and sweet. Well, sweet, I guess, is not the right word for it. but uh, depends, uh, <laughs> depends on your taste in fluids, I guess. Yeah. Uh, really interesting stuff. And I kind of like his style. It was uh, simple and really interesting subject matter. With uh, I, <laughs> At the end, you can hear... Keaton actually trying to uh, to verify with Jeff Peck that that what he said about um, peeing in a bottle and drinking it to get high off the meth was actually medically accurate. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it to those guys. I'm not gonna try that uh, to find out. All I gotta say is like, if I'm at the point in my life where I'm looking for bottles of pee to get high off of, there's been a couple, at least a couple bad choices. I would imagine so. <laughs> and then uh, we follow that up with um, a, a story, as, as you probably noticed, even kind of the commentary at the end there. Um, uh, Aaron Keaton reads uh, Redneck Shoots Down a Flying Saucer, which, you know, kind of starts off as a kind of tongue-in-cheek funny story, but actually becomes very kind of sad and dismal towards the end. It was a it was a nice turn in Kinder's story there. Yeah, unexpected turn. Really changed the mood. Uh, Well-delivered, I'd say. It's one of those things. I don't know how that would have sounded with someone else like Chuck Kinder reading it himself. But I thought um, much like we talked earlier about uh, Mark Rapaz that um, that just perfect delivery, perfect delivery all the way through. Yeah, totally. All right. uh, So that's going to wrap it up for our thoughts about the the readers for tonight. I did mention earlier, David James Keaton, we did have him on uh, on the show. And that is something we do a lot of. We do author interviews. We've had Damon James Keaton on when we talked about ZB&B. Uh, we had a bunch of other authors on, including Anthony Neal Smith, who uh, Livius mentioned a minute ago. We had him on after we did our reviews of Yellow Medicine and Hogdoggin'. And we also had um, Donald Ray Pollock. We reviewed his book, The Devil, all the time. And then we had him on for like about a half hour to talk about that. And he was a really interesting dude. So feel free to go back into our catalog and check out some of our interesting author interviews that we've had. Yeah, there's well over 20 author interviews, and there will be more forthcoming. I promise. I promise we'll have more. Yeah, and um, I don't know about you, but when we were doing the noir at the bar, if we could have snuck like another hour into the day, I would have loved to sat down with Jed, Jed Ayers, and even Scott Phillips, or both of them at the same time, or however that would have worked out, because those are some really interesting dudes, too. Oh, they're on my list, sir. They are on my list. <laughs> Until next time, I'm Livius Nutton. Now I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading. They were shouting in the street and the sound of running feet. And I asked someone who said about a hundred cups a day. I heard my mom.